that it was sarcastic. I, I mean, I didn't think it was too sarcastic. <laughs> was, I have no, I have no maximum level for my desire for sarcasm. Well, we might. I think we might hit. It. We might hit <laughs> pe- some people's maximum. Oh yeah. Oh, some people yeah. were definitely. <laughs> their alerts were going off all over the country in yeah. the first segment. Yeah. This is. Um, well, I was talking about. Uh, thank you for joining us. I was uh, talking about the. The Biden administration. And gosh darn it, where did I put all those top secret documents? And the fact that McCarthy's like, God, the hypocrisy. Shut up about the hypocrisy. We got it. We got it. Um, uh, So I explained what's really going on there. Also, in the next hour, uh, based on something else, I kind of I kind of expose what people really mean when they're like, I just don't care anymore. That's not entirely true. And you'll hear the explanation. Then Chad Robichaux, who is just a real-life Tom Cruise, comes in. He's got a new book called Saving Aziz. It is what? This is finally the official story of what happened. We raised all of that money to free these people in Afghanistan. This is how it was done. So this is really your story, Saving Aziz. You'll have to uh, have to listen in the podcast. By the way, also Saturday's podcast, if you missed it, is Richard Dreyfus, and it is a great conversation. You may not agree with him on everything, but a great conversation. Today's podcast brought to you by Built. I can have a Built right now. Built bars are delicious. They are delicious. They have about 130 calories. This is one of their new kind of like marshmallow puffs. This is mud pie. Oh, my God. Okay, 130 calories, 4 grams of net carbs, 17 grams of uh, protein. It's amazing. You're going to love it. And it's got the protein in it, so it's good for you. You know what I mean? It's like eating a candy bar, but then not. Your wife doesn't look at you and give you the dirty look when you are... What? It's a Bilt Bar. What are you talking about? It's totally healthy for me. Bilt.com. Use it. You don't have Gosh, to actually so eat. Funny. We're on. It's an audio broadcast. All They're right. not going to know if you're actually eating it. I am a method actor. Oh, you're a method actor? Mm-hmm. I think that's what you said. Bilt.com. Bilt.com. Promo code back. The promo code back. Bilt.com. Save 15%. Save 15%. Bilt.com. Promo code back. He's uh, come out and said the discovery of more classified documents in President Joe Biden's possession. Oh, that highlights the hypocrisy within inside the federal government. Yeah, okay, it does do that. It does. Yeah, we. But is this is this new? Did we, haven't we always said this? Oh, think if Donald Trump. I mean, I could I could go back in time. Uh, think if Ronald Reagan would have done that. Think of Eisenhower if he would have done that. I mean, you can go all... Think of Lincoln if he would have done that. It, this is the same story. It's the same story. We got it. Now, why is this story happening? Well, let me give you... Uh, they found more documents over the weekend. Now, remember, the White House said, we're absolutely done with documents. We, they found everything. They found more over the weekend at another house. 
How many houses? This guy is like Ronald McDonald. <laughs> Ronald McDonald's constantly building another Ronald McDonald house. <laughs> how many houses does that clown need? How many houses does the president need? He's got to have more houses. So they went to another house and they're like, whoops. Okay, it's not exactly over, but these documents really don't matter. Okay, all right. Um, well, they're classified documents, so I'm pretty sure that would matter. Now, they went to uh, Wilmington, and, uh, and, and when I say they, they went to Wilmington and uh, Rehoboth Beach, that's where his other house is. And when I say they, I mean the same people that went to, you know, his foundation with the university. So who are they? His attorneys. Now, this started back in, what was it, November or, or October, where the president's attorneys went to his office to pack up stuff and, uh, and close that office. His attorneys. Now, that is the world's most expensive moving company. Okay. <laughs> Why would you have your attorneys do that? Well, I could provide a thesis. Let's say you know you have something you shouldn't have. And maybe you've done something you shouldn't have done. You go to your attorneys first. Because to them, you don't have to say, I know this guy, what you say to them is, you guys can't talk, right? I mean, legally, everything I say to you, you can't repeat it, right? Right. Good. I got all these top secret documents, okay? There's a bunch of, bunch of them over there. There might be a bunch of them. In, I mean, I think I might have some in Sandy Burger socks. I don't know. So can you guys go in there, and if you find them, just do what you have to do. I don't want to know about it. Okay. The president has said last week, the attorneys told me, you know, to not even ask about it. Oh. Hmm. But did you guys talk about it before they said that to you? So the attorneys go in, they find it, and they immediately call and cooperate. You know, that is big of Joe Biden. Now, that's why he had the attorneys there. Now, go to his house. But I have it with my Corvette. Ah, yeah, we're going to come back to that. Sa that is like the safest place on earth. You have an old Corvette? I'm telling you, you can't break into the, the garage door opener. Pfft, nobody has one of those. Nobody has one of those. You can't just and get in because the garage door opens. <laughs> it's locked. You need some sort of like, I, I don't, I, this is even beyond quantum computing to be able to get past one of those Sears garage door openers. So uh, we're going to come back to that one. So then his other house this weekend, after it's all out in the open, his attorneys are there at the other house. Now, I don't know why they haven't done all of the places they could look, you know, at once, maybe in November. Hey, we found him in the basement. Do you have any in, you know, next to your Corvette? Well, there is that big box that's just classified and has big red tape all over it. Yeah, we should probably go there. Do you have any other houses that do it? I don't know why. I don't know why, but they're fully cooperating. Okay. Now, 
let's 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 ask two questions here. Let's ask two questions. When something says top secret, to get a top secret classification, what do they do before you get that little card? Stu. They usually do a background check. Background check. Mm-hmm. Okay, good, good, good. What are they looking for? Maybe criminal activity. Criminal activity. Some yeah, way sure. you could be compromised. Compromised, sure. Or, you know, I just toured the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. you know. They're looking for anything that you've done that shows that you are on, uh, let's say, not America's side. Or you have any friends that might be, let's say, not on American side, or you have any business dealings with some people that, let's just say, are not on America's side. And then you also look, final thing is, um, is he compromised with money, with drugs? Is there a sex scandal? Is he, is he prone to a honeypot thing? Okay. All right. That's what they're looking for because – you can so easily need money, and then somebody can come out and go, listen, I'm Boris, but I absolutely love America. And I just want to see the, I want to see top secret document because I want to show you how American I am. I'll never say anything to Soviet Union. Okay, all right. That guy could approach you and go, so you need a little money, maybe, little heroin. Okay, I can help. But I want to see top secret document. That's what they're worried about. Okay. Hmm. Now, wait a minute. This is in the president or vice president's house. At the time, he was the vice president. And he had them there while he was vice president. And then he kept them there while he was president. Okay. So they've been in there for a while. Who else has been in his house? Oh, my gosh. A guy who is constantly asking for money for drugs and hookers. A guy who is doing shady business deals with China and with Russia and uh, Ukraine. Wait a minute. That's exactly the kind of guy we don't want to have access to top secret documents. Yeah, but he was almost never there. Well, let's go back to that ultra secure garage. That's the house that Hunter Biden was renting from his dad. Not now with his art money. He was renting it from his dad when he had no money. Remember? I got no money. I, that's why she's pregnant. I couldn't afford a condo. Oh, poor guy. So his dad said, just stay at my house. I'm not living there. You just stay at my house. Oh, my gosh, what a great dad. And he wanted to make sure his son grew up a little bit. And you're going to have to work for it a little bit. You know, this house, the the most expensive rent in this area is $6,000 a month. So I'm going to cut you a deal because you're my son. You just pay $50,000 a month. But, Dad, remember, I couldn't afford the condom. Right. Well, this is a condominium more letters gotta be a little more expensive fifty thousand dollars to his 
desperate son. Now, where does his desperate, I don't have any money son get that money? Well, don't worry. He's got a job with like Burisma. He's doing deals over in China. Completely his deal. No big deal. No big deal. Joe Biden doesn't know a thing about it. Nothing. He's not getting any money from it. He's just trying to help out his poor wayward son, giving him access to his house so he has a place to rest his angelic head while dad charges him $50,000 a month. And what's in that house? The boxes of top secret documents right there next to the garage. So you don't need MacGyver. You don't need some genius to go, how do we break in past that Sears robotic arm? How do we do it? Because you already have a drug addict inside who's right in his family going, yeah, at least dad doesn't take half your money. Remember, he's really bitter and angry with his dad at that time. He wants his dad to suffer. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. On the uh, quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, uh, Josh Allen. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Um, Who, of course, was responding to what happened to his teammate. DeMar Hamlin. Almost said Lamar Alexander, but yes, DeMar Mm -hmm. Hamlin Mm -hmm. is right. I wanted to see if you were paying attention. Anyway. uh, You hmm? almost said the senator? (laughs) Hmm? Forget it. So... uh, so he's he's responding to all of that, and uh, mm-hmm. he says over the weekend, you know, I haven't been the most, uh, you know, uh, devoted guy, and and but uh, watching it, watching what happened on the field has moved me deeply, sure. uh, and um, you know, spirituality, higher power, and you know, you don't believe in that. I'm not going to judge. I don't want to offend. Well, what? Who you know when you can witness something like this, and and you have to be. I am so offended by what he said. Shut up! Shut up! Stop trying to couch everything. I mean, we get it. We get it. And you you know you can couch it like, hey, I'm not trying to preach to you, but man, this has affected me deeply. I am, I mean, I'm I'm going back to praying and everything else. Well, I'm not. That's poppycock. Okay, cool. Move on with your life. There's a real problem in America when everybody, when Christians are all apologizing all the time for everything. There's a real problem in the country. And it's it comes from this wokeness bullcrap. You you don't have to apologize to say, nope, dude over there, definitely a woman. You don't have to apologize. That one you should explain. Wait a minute. What? That one you should explain. Especially if you're saying that to my third grader in class as a fact. I don't know. Now maybe we should have that conversation. 
All of this stuff is weakening us. And as I was saying last half hour, when people say, I don't care, I just don't care anymore. What you're saying is, I've given up because I know nothing's going to change. Well, first of all, that's not true. A lot has changed. A lot has changed. Just just look at the Great Reset. They're going into the you know, World Economic Forum. They're going in and they are changing all kinds of stuff this year because, really honestly, of you. You think you don't have an impact? A year ago, last week, we published the book, The Great Reset. Nobody was talking about ESGs. Nobody even knew what it was. Nobody was talking about The Great Reset. Nobody even knew what it was. And if anybody was talking about it, they were saying it was a conspiracy theory. Well, now, guess what the World Economic Forum is doing? They're changing their language again. They're in retreat because people know you made a difference. So don't give up on things because things are changing. I understand giving up on things like, yeah, well, they're going to pay a heavy price because there's going to be a hearing on that. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But on things like our schools, what's happened in the last year? Look what's happened in the last year in our schools. A lot has changed. Let me ask you this. Have you, would you have heard this a year ago? Now, this is at the Oxford Union. <laughs> and this happened during a debate at the Oxford Union. Remember, universities all woke. Listen to this statement. It's gone viral over the last weekend. Listen to this. Now, I want to talk to those of you who are woke and who are open to rational argument. A small minority, I accept. <laughs> because one of the tenets of wokeness is, of course, that your feelings matter more than the truth. But I believe in you. I believe there are those of you here who are woke, who are open to rational argument, so let me make one. We are told that your generation cares more than any other about one issue in particular, and that issue is climate change. We're told that many of you suffer from climate anxiety. You wish to save the planet. And for tonight, and tonight only, I will join you. I will join you in worshipping at the feet of St. Greta of climate change. <laughs> Let us all accept right here, right now, that we are living through a climate emergency and our stocks of polar bears are running extremely low. I join you in this view. I truly do. Now, what are we to do about this huge problem facing humanity? What can we in Britain do? We can only do one thing. You know why? This country is responsible for 2% of global carbon emissions, which means that if Britain was to sink into the sea right now, it would make absolutely no difference to the issue of climate change. You know why? Because the future of the climate is going to be decided in Asia and in Latin America by poor people who couldn't give a about saving the planet. You know why? Because they're poor. Because they're poor. I come from Russia, which is not a poor country, it's a middle-income country. 20% of households in Russia do not have an indoor toilet. What they have is an outdoor toilet. And I don't mean one of those nice port that we get here. I don't even mean a Glastonbury port -a 
I mean a wooden shack with a hole in the ground that holds a collected fermented memory of the last 10,000 visits. <laughs> How many of you are going to go home tonight and say, let's rip out our bathroom and erect a Siberian house in the back garden? And if you're not, why should they? 120 million people in China do not have enough food. I don't mean that they don't get dessert. I mean they suffer from malnutrition. That means that their immune system is breaking down because they don't have enough food. You're not going to get them to stay poor. Imagine you're Xi Jinping, the leader of China. When you were 10 years old, there was a revolution, a cultural revolution in your country. And people came and they put your father in prison. Your mother had to denounce him. Your sister killed herself. And you, no longer enjoying the protection of your formerly powerful father, were sent to a village where you lived in a cave house. And here you are, decades later. You have clawed your way up the bloody and greasy pole of Chinese politics to be the undisputed supreme leader of the very Communist Party that destroyed your family. And you know that the main thing you have to do to survive and to stay in power is to deliver the one thing that the people of China want, prosperity, economic growth. Where do you think climate change ranks on Xi Jinping's list of priorities? A third of all children who live in extreme poverty in the world live in India. That means they are starving and dying of preventable disease. Now, about 15 months ago, my wife got pregnant. Not me, because we're old school. <laughs> and for nine months, we talked about what our boy would look like. What he might do when he grows up. We looked at baby scans and videos on YouTube about what the fetus looks like at nine months and 12 months and 20 months. And eventually he was born. And he is this cute little bundle of joy. He's cuter than about 80% of puppies. Right. Now, if you said to me that I had a choice, either my son had a serious risk of starving or dying from a preventable disease in the next year, or I could press a button and he would live. He would go to school. He would bring his first girlfriend home. He'd go to university and graduate and become a woke idiot. <laughs> And then he'd get a job and get married and have children and become a man. But all I have to do is press this button. And for every day of my son's life, a giant plume of CO2 is going to re get released into the atmosphere. Now, you're all very young and most of you are not parents. Let me tell you something. There is not a parent in the world who would not smash that button so hard their hand bled. You are not going to get these people to stay poor. You're not even going to get them to not want to be richer. And so, I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen, there is only one thing we can do in this country to stop climate change. And that is to make scientific and technological breakthroughs that will create the clean energy that is not only clean, but also cheap. And the only thing that wokeness has to offer in exchange is to brainwash bright young minds like you to believe that you are victims to believe that you have no agency, to believe that what you must do to improve the world is to complain, 
is to protest, is to throw soup on paintings. And we on this side of the house are not on this side of the house because we do not wish to improve the world. We sit on this side of the house because we know that the way to improve the world is to work, is to create, it is to build. And the problem with woke culture is that it's trained too many young minds like yours to forget about that. Thank you very much. If that is not clear and understandable, wokeness does nothing to change the world. The best of the Glenn Beck Program. read you the foreword, uh, just a bit of it, from uh, Saving Aziz. Um, I first met Chad Robichaux in 2016 through a mutual friend, David Barton. I had heard about his multiple deployments in Afghanistan, his struggles with PTSD and suicide after he came home. Our shared love of history, independence, and dependence on our faith to transcend the dark valleys of our past and desire to use our struggles to pay it forward. These things instantly bonded us. I could tell Chad was the real deal. A man of his word, he was a man of honor. I had him on my show several times to share his story and to speak on veterans care and how his organization, the Mighty Oaks Foundation, was working to combat veteran PTSD and suicide. Upon hearing his words, I said, sign me up. My wife and I and our charity, Mercury One, became a supporter. We remained in touch over the years, and when the debacle began unfolding in Afghanistan, I didn't give the decision a second thought. Chad and I locked arms and dove in together to do what we really needed to be done. Um, We did what our government wasn't doing, and that's saving as many people as possible from the bloodlust of the Taliban. Most of these were SIVs, meaning they were qualified for special immigrant visas because they helped our country and American troops when they were deployed. It goes on for a couple of more pages, and let me just give you this. I, like Chad, um, while this crisis made me ashamed of our government, it also made me ponder about the American people. I was at the point where I was absolutely hopeless about America. I thought, we're just not going to make it. But then I saw people from all walks of life and all income levels and all parties come together and say, this is wrong and we'll do something about it. My heart swelled. Our national honor may have meant nothing to those in Washington, but it meant everything to countless Americans. For the first time in my life, I felt if the government and elites would just get out of the way of the people, we'd solve a lot of our problems. This is a book that tells the story of what happened in Afghanistan, and I mean really in Afghanistan. Um, Aziz was the interpreter for Chad while he was over in Afghanistan. For how many tours did you do over there? I did eight, uh, and uh, all eight were with Aziz because we're a very, very unique scenario in the, my job specifically and the way our, our relationship was. This story is also a story of God and the miracles that happen uh, when you just do all that you can do, and then doors just start to open. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I think it's a, just an example of when you're obedient to God's burning of your heart and you step forward in faith. You know, yeah. the Bible says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 11 or 5 7 that we, we walk by faith and not by sight. And we see things that look impossible, and, and they are impossible at times, but, you know, 
uh, these are things that God, God is capable of doing. You know, somebody <laughs> said to me, um, uh, I've had several Christians say to me, uh, you know, Glenn, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I'm like, well, you know, I think the only thing that will happen is if we turn to God yeah. and we really need to turn back to God. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I know. But what are we going to do? And I, I keep wanting to say, you know, the guy you look at is Savior and me, too. He rose from the dead. That's a little harder yeah. to do than saving the country. I mean, I think God could ha- could take this on yeah. if we all just rededicate ourselves to him. Well, you know, this story and, and uh, if I could get one thing out of this story, saving is easy. It is to tell that the story of God doing miracles today, because what would happen in uh, in the rescues of, of 17,000 people, by the way, by, by just a handful of civilians who had no money to do it. Had never done humanitarian operation like that before, and uh, and we're not with the government anymore. Uh, is it is a story of a of a divine miracle? I'm not smart enough or capable enough. I have the experience and background to do these things, but I'm not smart enough, capable enough to pull that off. It was too big of a thing. What, and, and it is amazing <laughs> because you went and you actually were over there and yeah. you were doing the work, but like you said, you didn't have the money, and I was over here raising money, not. Connecting right. yet? No. Raising the money, our audience was yeah. given money, and I was saying internally, we don't have any guys on the other side of the fence. Right? How are we going to get them to these planes? And that's when we connected. Yeah. And it was amazing. Uh, organization after organization all brought puzzle pieces together. That's right. That yeah. we were all short of. Yeah, it's a, it is. It was a perfectly orchestrated uh, series of events that if any one of the I've been speaking a lot about this. If any one of, looking back now, if any one of these pieces fell. didn't work, yeah, fell or the door didn't open, the whole thing didn't work. Yep. I mean, when we went there, you know, obviously my original intent was to go rescue my friend. You know, I I had I had did eight deployments with that with Aziz. He was. You know, so dear to me. So I'm going. And he saved your life several times. He saved my life on three occasions. So to give a little background of how we worked, I was a I was in a, a JSOC task force, a Joint Special Operations Command task force, with one of our premier special operations units, and uh, and I was what's called an AFO there, Advanced Force Operator, which really is like the best way I know to describe it, it's like being undercover. You go in a single ten capacity by yourself, and you work with a local national to go out and advance your unit in the mountains of Afghanistan, across border in Pakistan, to build the infrastructure to put our soldiers on target to capture or kill the bad guys. That was my job. And Aziz was not only my interpreter, but he was my teammate. And ultimately you spend weeks and months like that. Either you're going to hate the guy, or you're going to love the guy. And, uh, you know, I fell in love with him. He's like, uh, he's one of my, my best friends in the world. He, he saved my life multiple times, but I'd say he saved my life every day. Like don't walk there. Don't eat that. Don't talk to this person. If you speak right now, they're going to kill us. Like, and I, I've seen him put his, his life on the line for, uh, for, other service members. I mean, he. We just got him recognized by U.S. Congress. He was the first Afghan ever to be recognized by the U.S. Congress mm. for the for the rescue of four Navy SEALs that in an operation he and I were on. I was tasked with this operation to recover these, do a clandestine extraction of these four SEALs that were caught in this Taliban village, and and we were out of options. And it was Aziz who stepped up and said, "I know how we're going to do this. Let's take this vehicle." He drove us through the night uh, into this Taliban village, and we got these you know, four Navy SEALs out. So he's an incredible he, human being. You knew when this was all falling. Apart part you knew that aziz should have been on the list would have i mean he had if been in the process listen, for six years right he had been he had been in the siv process for six years it's a broken system it's supposed to take nine months right but six years it's close to nine months <laughs> uh, turn a nine upside down it looks like a six anyway um so he is uh you knew immediately there's no way he's going to get out 
No, because I had already tried to use my relationships in Congress and Senate, and uh, and it just wasn't happening. And it wasn't happening for many SIVs. And like I said, it's a nine month process and a promise that we gave in two thousand nine. Our interpreters and we had we had uh, we had forfeited this uh, our our commitment to them. And uh, and Aziz is a guy who had access to top secret information, served in special operations for fifteen years, been polygraphed. If he couldn't get out. You had to think about some of the others, right? So, uh, so I, I knew he was in danger in April, not August. There was trouble all the way back in April. One of our old teammates that had turned on us to the Taliban and had, uh, had been hunting Aziz before he, this guy had 10 of our team members killed who were friends of mine. He had, uh, he drove a vehicle, well, he, he had someone drive a vehicle bomb in my house looking for Aziz. He, he, he had me abducted by a foreign intelligence agency, which I I can't say which one, Mm -hmm. but, uh, so I, I mean, this is a really bad guy. We had him arrested. He was put in jail, but it, President Obama's uh, administration let him loose, and uh, as with many others, and he turned back to the Taliban. So he's looking for Aziz all the way back in April, and uh, and so we started moving Aziz, and I'm getting more and more desperate. And we we hear President Biden announce that date to say we're going to withdraw on the anniversary of 9/11. Uh, my heart sank and I knew a couple of things. One, I knew this was going to be catastrophic and we could go into, if you want, why for the global security and national security of the world, that was catastrophic. But secondly, uh, my heart went selfishly to my friend and said, I have to go get my friend. So where did you first go? What did you do? What was your plan? <clears throat> well, my, I, had, I had two plans and uh, the first one didn't work out. The first plan is I called uh, Richard McGinnis, who works for uh, Tucker Carlson. He's done went undercover with Antifa and BLM and he was crazy enough to do it. And I said, hey, do you want the story in Afghanistan of the withdrawal? I'll get you there. And we'll go in and we'll get a we'll get my interpreter on the ground to be our cultural liaison. Once we get the get the interview, we're going to fly him back to Dubai to interview him and his family. And then he's never going back. And they were in and a daily caller actually mm-hmm. approved it. Uh, and, and, uh, but it happened too fast. So we couldn't pull that off. And so I said, we're just going to have to go in and get him. And so I ca- started calling former special operations guys that I knew I could trust because I knew them long-term. They had the ASO AFO level experience to work independently. And they were mature guys who had already been to combat. So they wouldn't be itching to go and get in a, a gunfight with the Taliban. And is that what you mean by you knew you could trust them? I knew I could trust them in that. Yeah. that I mean, I didn't want to bring guys that were like, hadn't got the chance to go get some, you know, mm-hmm. in combat and then be out there. Uh, that was not what we we're going there for. The time for combat was over. This was going to be to rescue uh, my friend, his family, and potentially others. But where it shifted was one of our teammates. We had guys from, you know, SEALs, Force Recon Marines, Green Berets. We had a couple of paramilitary officers from the CIA, uh, some very experienced guys. And one of the guys said, hey, there's this group of 3,500 orphans. Why don't we get them too? And, uh, and then we kind of paused for a second and said, the skill set we have in the room, the passion that we have to do this, uh, let's get as many Americans, interpreters, their families, women, children, Christians that will be persecuted. Let's get as many people as we can. And, uh, and I believe it. I think everyone in that room was uh, believers, you know, uh, Christians. And, and I think we all felt this burden on our heart. That's why I called it Task Force 6 8 from Isaiah 6 8. Hear mm-hmm. my, send me. And, uh, and we just all wanted to be obedient to that. And, if any, if we get credit for anything, and I know you've given me credit with the Bonhoeffer Angel Award, and Congress has recognized me for this, but if we get any credit for anything, it was, the only thing I feel like we deserve credit for was being obedient to say yes to that burden that God put our heart. Because after that, everything was a divine miracle. I mean, within three days, 
the uh, Sarah Verardo talked to the Joint Chiefs and got permission for us as civilians to go in HKI Airport, which is DOD controlled, and do a civilian evacuation. Anybody knows anything about the military? That's impossible for that to happen. And I still don't know how it happened. They gave us permission to go there, and they said they would vet our manifest. Uh, now, secondly, we have to move people without visas to another country, which is human trafficking if you don't have paperwork yep. the only place that's allowed is right here in laredo texas <laughs> <laughs> but in the real world you know we have to have right. we have to have permission so we called the royal family of the uae because we had relationships there with uh, some of the family members two of our teammates actually had historical relationships there and we told them what we were going to do and they said uh not only will you can you bring them here but we'll give you a humanitarian center doctors food we're going to care for them and uh, and we'll work with the State Department to be able to actually get them to the U.S. Because a lot of people gave us slack for we're bringing people to the U.S. I don't have the ability to bring people to the U.S. Right. I had the ability to evacuate people from Afghanistan, sure. but bringing them to America is not up to me. Um, and then and then that's happening. And then the the royal family says after that, not only that, but we're going to give you two C-17 planes and and pilots, uh, which sounds like a lot, but we even need it more. And so that, but that was amazing. And then the next thing that happened all within three days is I got on the phone with you and you told me that you got behind a microphone because you want to do what, what you could, what you had, this is your greatest weapon mm-hmm. and you pat, you used your voice and, uh, and, and people responded. And, and I, I think you were like, I didn't know what was going to happen, but we raised billions of dollars and, <laughs> yeah. and what are we going to do with it? And then you, you connected me with Rudy Atala, uh, amazing, amazing human being at, at Mercury one. And we synergized on the effort to start coordinating the, uh, the procurement of planes, uh, to be able to manifest planes and get planes, uh, rotating in. And, and, and the large majority of, uh, of the, the 17,000 people we got out were on planes that Mercury one in your audience. So I, I'm super it's thrilled a, to be a, here to be. It's amazing. <laughs> 17,000 people. And it started with, I got to go over and save my friend. Started with, I got to go over and save my friend. And, and we did get Aziz the first day. You know, we had, we had so much happening. We had our, our, uh, our team in Abu Dhabi, which is where I was run, running operations. We had a team in Sarah Verardo was running in Washington, D.C. to take applications and make sure they're the right people, not just anyone. We're vetting the right people, which unfortunately DOD did, did not, not do that. Um, and people said they were concerned about who was coming here. I was too. I want to make sure. I mean, I'm I was concerned, concerned on every single person that was in our purview on our planes we were concerned yeah. the united states government didn't seem didn't, to care didn't care yeah i mean we we did our, our due diligence and we didn't bring them straight to america we put them through a filter process Correct. in a third party country uh but you know for us we having that process running was very intricate and, uh, and it was amazing how fast i'm so proud of everyone that was involved how fast we were able to get a system in place we had our ground team going outside the wire at h kaya and three-man teams to grab people as we coordinated a rescue list and uh and no one stopped to sleep i was so amazed by everyone uh 10 days if you stopped for five minutes to sleep you felt like you were trading that for a human life and uh, so no one see my friend c spray we write about in the book he lost 37 pounds in that 10 days Jeez. we didn't know how we didn't know how long we had we just knew we couldn't stop but when that abigate blew up and 13 of our service members mm-hmm. were killed um we 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 watched the military weld those gates shut and the u.s military did not want to leave uh, but they had to, but we didn't have to, and, and we chose to stay. I was. I want to talk to you about yeah, that here. Let yeah. me give, give me a minute here, and, I, and we're going to come back. The name of the book is Saving Aziz by Chad Robichaux, uh, and it is it's fantastic, and it is the story of what happened because you responded. He was over the seventeen thousand people that he got out. Many of those were were out because you gave five bucks or a hundred bucks or whatever it was. 
This is your story, Saving Aziz. You can get it now. Na, 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 na.